This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. We are at the point in the show where we have a second guest. Top of the second hour is a guest slot for us, and we are delighted to have Ben Ryder join us. Ben, if you've been following baseball, you might know of him, even if you don't know exactly his name. Ben is the writer for Sports Illustrated who wrote the column, the article, 2014, that led to the cover that made one of the great predictions in journalism history. We'll go into that, but first, let's welcome Ben Ryder. Hey guys, good morning. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning, Ben? New York City. All right. Well, that's a long way from Houston, but you made a very famous trip down there we want to hear about, but you're, I'm guessing you've had a pretty good week. Is that safe to guess? It has been a good week. You know, I, I think back to the end of Game 7 of the World Series, where it seems as if the Astros, unusually for that series, were going to coast on in and get an easy win, and our prediction was going to prove correct and all that. And I think back to a thought I had late in the game, which was, man, if they somehow figure out a way to blow this now, I might be in trouble. A sports illustrator might be in trouble, too. And even the most analytically inclined of thinkers might believe that the jinx is real. Mm. Uh, thankfully for, for, for us, that didn't happen. Yeah, right. it's, it's a testament. That World Series definitely taught us that there is no such thing as an easy win. That's right. That's right, for sure. I mean, you think back to Game 5 one of the most wild seesawing games I've ever seen. And I think, technically, by win expectancy, one of the most seesawing games in World Series history. Right. Game 7. Game 7 was not like that, which is probably a good thing no, uh, for my was. heart and exactly. for a lot of hearts around Houston. It, they, we needed the break, for sure. That, was shocking, that shocking first inning, I mean, just took the pressure right off and then they fo- followed it up. That was a, it, was kind, it was kind of a relief. I don't know how it felt as a Dodgers fan, but it was kind of a relief as, as an Astros fan. Ben, I, we want to hear more about the story and, and, and kind of the, the, the details on how it happened. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about how you experienced the World Series and this season. I mean, it, it must have been in the back of your mind, even you know, back in April, that this was the year that the cover would either you know, bear out or not. How did, you, well, how did you experience the Astros in this season? Well, it certainly was, but it wasn't just this season, really. You know, I've written, I believe it's 21 cover stories for Sports Illustrated now. And this one, for whatever reason, didn't just start getting attention this year. From the moment it hit newsstands in June of 2014 and was clunked into mailboxes, this thing made an enormous splash. At first, people were furious about it, uh, honoring the worst team anyone had ever seen (laughs) with this, you know, this prestigious position on the front of Sports Illustrated. Uh, and those people, I should add, included certain writers within Sports Illustrated. Is, is that right? Thought okay. That, thought that this was a huge mistake. Uh, got a lot of backlash on it. People thought it was just ridiculous. Then 2015, of course, they were good all of a sudden. Everybody started to think, oh, man, maybe this thing, uh, maybe there's some truth to this. Right. Surprisingly. So really, since that happened, it, it's followed me. I've been associated with the Astros. And, of course, this year, you know, I saw Jeff Luno, the GM in spring training, and 
they remember too. He said, the first thing he said to me is this is our year. <laughs> I guess it, it turned out that that was the case. That's awesome. That's awesome. So can, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the story? Like why, why did you go down there to begin with and, and what did you learn at that time that led to you guys writing it this way? <clears throat> right. Well, we were really drawn down there by one factor, which was just how incredibly awful this franchise had become, mm-hmm. right? We knew that they were run by very intelligent front office executives, including Jeff Luno, a Wharton graduate, I believe. Yes, sir. Uh, and they had had success in St. Louis, but they were not having any success whatsoever in Houston. They, people were enraged, in fact, by how much they were losing. It seemed like they were tanking, it was unclear what the plan was. So I wanted to go down and negotiate access really unprecedented access, at least maybe since Michael Lewis and Moneyball or something like that, to have a look inside the organization, to sit actually in their draft rooms and draft meetings before the 2014 draft and get a sense of just what they were trying to do down there. And I came away after a few days with the genuine feeling that they were on to a new model of rebuilding, that it was rebuilding with a purity, as they called it. Some people would call it a you know horrific intensity that had never before been uh, attempted. And that their decision-making process was going to be based not just on analytics and metrics, but they had found a way to bring back in what had been an overlooked source of information for some teams previously, which was the human factor, things like scouts' opinions and chemistry and stuff that a lot of statisticians scoff at, but to bring that in and synthesize it with all of their hard data to guide their decision-making going forward. Ben. It sounded like something that had a shot of working to me. So when we, when we put that cover out there, a lot of people accused us of being tongue-in-cheek, of just trying to you know, throw a hot take into the world. That's not what it was. Ben, how long have you been covering baseball, professional baseball? Uh, I, I started at Sports Illustrated in 2004. But that, that was real, back then, I was really a fact-checker and researcher. Uh, I'd say I started focusing on baseball, although I still do other things as well, in May around 2007, 2008. Okay, so at that time, you had been covering it, focused on it anyway, for six or seven years. Right. Did How open were you to the role of analytics and this kind of approach to baseball before you got down there? And, and how much of it was just from scratch and you were persuaded in a single trip? Extremely open to it. I mean, I, I you know, do my best to keep up with that. I'm not attending the Sloan Conference every year, but I certainly follow it uh, – as best as I can, I'm a believer in it. Certainly, it's, you'd be a, you're a fool now if you don't recognize its value. Um, but I've always had slight skepticism, as I think is healthy with anything involving big data, about using it as the be-all and end-all, as opposed to an extremely powerful tool right. by which you can make your decisions. Right. So I, we've lauded the Astros. We lauded, we lauded Jeff and, and Sig Mejdal before they were at the Astros when they were at the Cardinals at blending traditional scouting with the quantitative analytics approach. When you were down there, and you know this is a general issue for organizations, and increasingly so, how to blend algorithms with traditional human judgment. What did you, what did you see when you had this unprecedented access for a few days back in 2004? What did you see on how they did that? What lessons well, do you think other organizations might draw from that? I saw a lot. Um, you know, I saw, obviously, you know, the self-christened nerd cave, as the analysts call themselves, down in Houston, in the corner of the room, tapping away. Obviously, these guys are brilliant, drawn from NASA, you know, the country's best 
physics PhD departments, engineering departments, things like that. But I saw them in the same room with guys like Nolan Ryan and these old, you know, 65, 70-year-old Texan scouts with bushy white mustaches. Okay, hold on, Ben. Are you just, are you just like, this is... I think I've seen this scene before, though, right? (laughs) Well, you've seen this scene with them being, sitting across from each other at a table, antagonizing one another, right? What I saw was them sitting on the same side of the table, complimenting each other, working together. Hold on. Nolan Ryan in the Nerd Cave, really? That's not dramatic license? (laughs) No. Well, it was in one meeting room. I don't think Nolan Ryan hangs out in the Nerd Cave, typically. (laughs) It'd be probably pretty hard to program with Nolan Ryan sitting there, I would guess. But (laughs) But in this particular case, especially in this draft meeting they allowed me to sit in, which was in advance of them making the first overall pick in 2014, they were all sitting in the same room, and they all had their say. Like, certainly there was some skepticism between them, but that's fine. Basically, they are empowered to do the jobs that they've always done. And it's up to the GM, and it's up to Sig Meidel, really, to coordinate all of this uh, information of different types into one decision. And one way to do it with a scout is, for example, if a scout has issued an opinion on somebody, whether it's about his heart or competitiveness or something that's not really related to spin rates or launch angles or OBP or or any of those things, they will look back and regress that against, you know, the previous hundred times, every other time they have on record that the scout has issued this observation. And they will see how that turned out in that case. Mm -hmm. We have trying to project how this soft opinion might turn out in this case. So that's uh, one example of how of how they process that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So so I, and I mean I this kind of dovetails with what you said before that kind of intrigued me about how like Houston really oh. intended to sort of not just construct a team that like had the kind of best predicted quantitative performance because I mean that's something I guess all teams can do. It's trying to build right. in these like what we more consider more intangible things like chemistry as well as you know hard and all these kind of more scouting kind of concepts. How right. how do they do that? I mean, like, like, are they like somehow coding chemistry in to their models? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they, they regress the scouts' observations and they combine them in their kind of proprietary system to spit out a projected value. Essentially, mm-hmm. like it's essentially it's essentially a war, although they do it differently. But it's it's a player's value as related to what they're expected to have to pay them in the next however many years um, and how they weight. The various factors, I think that's kind of the secret sauce. And I think sometimes it's not as kind of disciplined as that. I think sometimes, like with Justin Verlander, right, when they added Justin Verlander at the trade deadline, this was not something that their probabilistic models liked at all. They do not like the idea of adding a 34-year-old pitcher making $30 million a year and sacrificing three top prospects mm-hmm. you can control for 18 years at the league minimum, for him. Like, that, right. the models did Huge. not like this move. Right. But, look, one of, the, one of their strengths is they're able to step outside their models and say, look, we can see that this team needs Justin Verlander to win the World Series, so we're going to do it. And they got it done with two seconds before the August 31st trade deadline, and I think it's very fair to say that they would not have won the World Series had they not made that move. Wow. You know, we, we were, were talking to Ben Ryder. Ben is the Sports Illustrated journalist who wrote the... Astros column back in 2014 
that led to the famous, now famous, even more famous, Sports Illustrated. It's been famous for three years, but now it's crushed it. <laughs> Sports Illustrated cover uh, predicting that the Astros would win the 2017 World Series, which they did. Ben, we were talking coming in here before the show about this tension between trading away these prospects that you've cultivated, you know, and you've made all these great decisions and you've built this great farm system. And then you sometimes then would trade away for a little bit of win now. You're going to increase the probability of winning now, but it's going to cost Mm -hmm. you. That's a very real tension. And and it'd be interesting to know how Jeff thought about that and how other teams have thought about it. We've never seen it analyzed, a kind of a big empirical study of which how teams manage the tension between those two things. Right. And they're also, you know, beyond the numbers, they're personally invested in these players. Right. They've known them in many cases since they were, you know, 16 years old or younger uh, and have followed them and have drafted them and invested a lot of time in them. So it's an emotional decision as well. But I think what Jeff would tell you is you can only trade these guys once, right? There's no going back once you make this move. So you have to be absolutely sure that this is the move to make like he's had many chances to trade his prospects he's a top farm system uh his own team dallas keichel was extremely disappointed at the regular trade deadline on july 31st when they did essentially nothing while the dodgers were adding you darvish right the cubs were adding jose quintana right he's adding sunny gray the astros just sat there and keichel spoke out but look they're not going to do something just because they feel like they're supposed to do it, because they know the value of these prospects is so great that it would damage the organization in the long term if they did something rash. They didn't at least believe had a great chance of working. So, but Ben, you can't ever be certain, right? Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't know for a fact that Verlander would. I mean, and speak. Yeah, no. I, the, so the Verlander thing, I've got a yeah. little bit of a problem. I mean, that is definitely a retrospective narrative, right? I mean, they were essentially a coin flip away from losing the World Series. And would we then be talking about how they sacrificed, you know, they went for, you know, they kind of deviated from their their plan and went for a win for it now and got burned because now they don't have a World Series and they've got this, you know, aged pitcher and (laughs) they lost, like, these top three prospects. I mean, I I feel like on, on a couple pitches, this entire narrative changed. Well, I think that's baseball, first of all. I think you're absolutely right. The narrative would have changed somewhat. But I think in Verlander specifically, they have a couple outs, right? First of all, he's not going anywhere after this season. He's going to be there for two years. Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, great, a mid-30 pitcher for two years. Well, the fact is, if you were to go out in the free agent market right now and try to add a pitcher as good as Justin Verlander, you couldn't get him for two years, right? You'd have to give him, like, five years, six years, You'd be paying this guy until he was 40, yeah. probably more per year than the Astros are going to pay Justin Verlander for the next two years. There's a lot of value, actually, in that short-term commitment, relatively short-term commitment, even at a high average annual value that they got for him. The other thing I'd point out is that when you look at the deals made for all these pitchers, the Astros arguably, and you never know because they're prospects, maybe they'll turn out to be superstars, arguably seem to have given up the lease. Okay, like you look at what the Cubs gave up for Jose Quintana. Eloy Jimenez, who's the centerpiece of that trade, is like the best hitting prospect in baseball, at least top five. Wow. With the, the best pitcher in the Astros deal uh, is Franklin Perez, who most people have in around number 50, yeah, top, I, 100, top 100 prospects. I'll just point out Jose Quintana is a lot younger than Justin Verlander, so you would think that the Cubs would have to give up less, uh, more but he's, for but that. He's not in, 
but he's not as good, and we're only looking at really two years. So the chances of him sustaining some significant organization-damaging decline are minimized, at least. You know, one thing that I think is definitely true is one of the reasons that you build a farm system as rich as the Astros built or that you accumulate draft picks like Bill Belichick does in New England, one of the, one of the very reasons for doing that yep. is to have a little bit extra capital to spend yeah, when, I mean, when you the, want to put some right. chips on that's something, right. uh, take a take a chance, and you yeah. and and you can and you and the Astros can better afford to do it because they've got the farm system that they have. And and I oh, love yeah. I love the phrase you used earlier, Ben. One of the strengths is being able to step outside your model. They weren't be, they weren't beholden. They recognize, you know, that's going to get us in the running, and then you need yeah. breaks. And we're we're just going to we're going to lean against that a little. We're going to try to create one of our own breaks here. And it's, it doesn't make and it And a relatively easier. low risk break, as you've pointed out. Re- re- yeah. Relatively low risk, but there's always going to be there's always going to be risk sure. there. We're talking to Ben Ryder. Ben is the Sports Illustrated writer behind the Houston Astros article in 2014, leading to the very famous cover. Can you tell us more about the cover decision? You know, there <laughs> you, you caught some snark after this because the, when the when they won, because like oh yeah, Ryder, like you like like you had anything to do with that cover? Journalists don't usually get to pick the cover, but it sounds like. You and Chris Stone or whoever it was were kicking these things around. So can you tell us how you decided to cover it this way? Sure. One more thing to wrap up the Verlander uh, discussion is that the Astros will even tell you they could never have expected him to be as good as he was. This is like a 99th percentile type of outcome for Justin Verlander uh, as far as their projections for him. So that was, that was helpful to, to, to the cause. Right. Now, as far as, as far as the cover, look, this was not supposed to be the cover of the magazine. Like, we'll lay that out there. This was, I went down to Houston. I was going to do a feature on the Astros. I thought it was going to be a great feature. Did not expect they would put the worst team anyone had ever seen on the cover of the magazine. In fact, even as the week was approaching, it was not supposed to be the cover of the magazine. But a few things happened. The NBA Finals ran short that year. The Stanley <laughs> Cup Finals ran short that year. Really? U.S. soccer, men's soccer, lost a heartbreaker in the last minute to Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal in the World Cup. So they weren't going to be the cover anymore that week. The other option was Michelle Wee, who had broken through to win the U.S. Open, and Alan Shipnuck, our golf writer, or one of our golf writers, had written a brilliant profile of Michelle Wee finally coming through. He felt strongly this should have been the cover, and he was publicly outraged when the Astros <laughs> came out on the cover. This is not something that happens, right? It's not like writers usually are going on Twitter and you know, half-jokingly blasting their editors-in-chief over their cover selections. But, but that's what Alan Shipnuck did when the Astros were on the cover, uh, which has led to a lot of you know a lot of humor over the next that's, three and a half years, especially can, now. Bit, hold yeah, on, Ben. I, let's, ben, I want to get just a little bit more on that. I missed what you said. Okay. What what did Michelle Weed? Did she won her first tournament? Was that the breakout she, event? She first major. Open. Oh, she the won the U.S. Oh my God. Okay. First major. Let right. me just say, I think I think one of Sports Illustrated's strengths for a while has been their golf coverage. By the way, and Shipnuck's, <laughs> and Shipnuck's great. Yet it's also one of these women in sports things, right? It's that you don't have that many chances to put, you know, to, to, right. you, and you're supposed to take advantage of them all you can. And here you are putting the worst <laughs> team in baseball on the cover. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. sharp. That's pretty sharp. He, he had a lot of good arguments, and he still does. Uh, but I think, you know, I think he's conceded. Oh, yeah, he'll concede it now, <laughs> as of last week. But listen, I, you're, it's true that writers don't make the call about what's on the cover, but in this case, I've had more uh, to do with it I think that at most, okay. Chris and I sat down and we looked at this plan that I'd written 5,000 words about in the magazine. And we looked at the future and we talked about, you know, he asked me when, if this is going to work, which I think that it will, you've convinced me, when will it happen? 
and everything was pointing to 2017. As far as the ages of the players, you know, Altuve was going to be 27, Springer was going to be 28, Correa was not going to be too young anymore. He's going to be 23, although, of course, he jumped his own timeline years ago. Okay, and so it would also give them enough time to have accumulated enough decisions to have actually built something. Like, if you look at the World Series roster, only 11 players of the 25 were even in the organization at any level when we put that cover story out, right? Wow. This is not like we could follow this group of players. Well, certainly there was a nucleus there. But it was more about their process and the decision-making timeline that led us to zero in on 2017. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great story. We're always trying to emphasize process, and you guys give us a yeah. Fantastic... To a certain extent, that makes it even more impressive that you were really, you really were at its essence in writing about a process or, and, and kind of an organizational like you you were writing about an organization, not the individual components that eventually right. accomplished this task. So how how did the you had just spent some time with those guys? How did those guys react when when you landed? when you, this cover came out? <laughs> um, I think they weren't 100% thrilled. I know they weren't 100%, <laughs> I know they weren't 100% thrilled. Like, obviously, they cooperated with the story. They obviously wanted the, the public, the nation, to have some idea of what they were actually trying to do down there as opposed to just losing in novel ways every night. Like, they loved walk-off errors that year. <laughs> they wanted some, you know, narrative out there besides that. I don't think they expected it to be a cover. I know they didn't because I couldn't have expected it was in a cover. And they certainly didn't expect Sports Illustrated to put a national deadline on this innovative new effort. They were just kind of in the beginning right. of installing. Right. So that was a bit of a drawback for them, but I don't think anybody has any regrets anymore. Ben, what do you think? What do you think? What are some of the nuances in the story you think we're missing, or what, in what way do you think people are getting the story wrong? One of the things that jumped out to me. You wrote a you wrote a follow up piece recently, just as the World Series started, and in there you named some of the missteps, some of the mistakes, or at least some of the misses. They may not have been mistakes, but they were misses over the last three years. And I and I love that you did that because I think it's easy to think, oh, you know, these guys, everything lined up just right, or they happened about a thousand on this thing. They didn't. They made a number of they, they they tried some things that didn't work out, which I think is inevitable. Yeah, and I mean that that almost underlies uh, any successful process has to take into account that there's randomness in outcomes, and so you know it's 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 good to talk about you know what went wrong as well. Yeah, I think that is perhaps the biggest misconception about the front office at least. I think partially because they came from outside baseball, although I don't think they should be viewed as baseball outsiders anymore. They've been in the league for over 10 years. But obviously Jeff Luno was a managing consultant. Big Meidel was a NASA engineer. I think a lot of people viewed them as these know-it-all geeks almost coming in and trying to upset everything, never thinking they were wrong, thinking they were right about everything. That's not true. What they were trying to accomplish via the decision-making process was simply getting marginally more decisions right and the competition, mm -hmm. and they always allowed for missteps, uh, and they were significant ones, perhaps even more than they could have expected uh, when it, back in 2014. For instance, everybody knows that they passed on Chris Bryant in the 2013 draft to pick uh, Mark Appel with the number one overall pick. That's a big mistake. Right. But they made another one at the end of 2014. I, you, I actually couldn't even recognize it yet because it was too recent when I wrote the story. But at the end of spring training in 2014, they outright cut a guy who they had inherited from the previous regime who had struggled on the big league level for a few years who kept telling them, guys, I made a swing change over the winter. I really think it's working here. Mm, mm. But they didn't give him enough at-bats in spring training, and then they just kind of let him go after having 
he passed through waivers and all the teams had a shot at him, by the way. That guy was J.D. Martinez, who virtually immediately in Detroit became, like instantly with his new swing, one of the top five or ten hitters in the league as he remains this day. So they were able to persevere through these significant mistakes they had. And more important than that, they learned from him. And Jeff Luno said, yeah, we definitely give guys who have said they made a change in the offseason more of a shot to show in spring training. Uh, is that right? Okay. It just it just goes yeah. to show. I, th- th- this says to me that, like, you know, give, given that Houston is such a well-run organization and they still make these kind of mistakes, how many mistakes are being made by the not well-run organizations, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you said there, Ben said there at the end, he said, and they've learned from them. So it's not yeah. only that they have such a good process that they can afford some missteps, inevitable missteps, but also that they try to learn from the ones that they that they get. Ben, speaking of learning, what what have you learned from this experience, and what's what what's on your what's on the horizon for you? <laughs> well, Who's I'm winning in twenty twenty? Is what we want to know, actually. I'll tell you, man. I, this thing has affected my own life, even away from sports center, from sports writing, and you know, really some attention I've had due to this thing, and it's really focusing on process over outcome. There you go. What these guys, what these guys are all about. Even in my day-to-day life, really. I think we used to judge, I used to judge myself on, you know, things like grades and school. And I don't know, just like whatever happened at the end, you know, just like it would be a mistake to judge the Astros because they won that relatively random game seven as opposed to losing it, right? Like that was like a 50-50 toss-up, came out in their favor. That's great. That's what they always wanted. But what really matters is the process, the way that you do things as you go through the accumulation of all the decisions you make you know, it's a cliche, which you hear in baseball clubhouses every day, but doing things the right way. There's actually meaning there. What they're talking about is doing process or, or, or understanding your process and committing to it. So I'd say, you know, not to get too touchy-feely, but for me, <laughs> for me, this story has really highlighted the importance of process in everybody's life as opposed to the outcomes at the end. Well, I think that's fantastic that we, we preach it big time around here and you know, I wish that you would you take the time to write that down somewhere, do something with that idea. And it's interesting to me that you say not to be too touchy feely when you're inspired by an organization run by a McKinsey consultant and <laughs> and a NASA engineer. Essentially, that, those are the two guys. So we know that they're not touchy feely. The process, it's, like, it's all, in some ways, is the opposite of it. But it goes against the culture of sports, which is all about you know you are what your record says you are, and so uh-huh. it feels touchy feely in contrast to that. But I don't think you could say anything that would be more heartening to, to to this show than to say it's affected it's affected me outside you know outside of my it's affected my life basically the way I think about decisions in the non sports world. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, they are obviously you know scientists and hard thinkers, but they've allowed human emotion to increasingly affect them as well. You know, like over the years, I think they realized that perhaps they were just being too commanding of their players passing down the dictates from on high about what they should be doing as far as shifts and stuff. Right. Now they take a lot more time to get the players to buy in, to work with the manager, AJ Hinch, to make sure that they're understanding uh, why they're doing this. And they also bring aboard a guy like Kel- Carlos Beltran, who's 40 years old, didn't hit this much here, but everybody says that, that his, you know, softer influence in the clubhouse, uh, they went to win the world series either. So they've, they've evolved as well. You know, I think the I think the field has even even Billy Bean, who's pretty extreme, and Daryl Morey, who's pretty extreme, would say that they've changed over time. That they're a little bit less beholden to the numbers and the models because they've realized that there are limits to those things. 
Uh, and yeah. the best, the best. I mean, the Cubs are very much of that philosophy. Mark Shapiro built the Indians very much on that philosophy. And it's hard. It's sometimes hard for analysts, hardcore analysts, and listeners of the show to realize there's limits to the models. You got to consider the human side of things. It's it's good to hear that Luno thinks about it. Luno thinks about it down there that way. But yeah. what what's do you have do you do you have a project a journalism project in front of you that was inspired by this in any way? <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I got a lot of things going here. Uh, maybe too early to reveal. But yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that this story is ending. In fact, you, you you have to keep in mind that they won this year. This is what they were going for. But they didn't go through all those torturous years in Houston for a one and done shot at a title. They went through all those all that torture to build a sustainable contender. You can't say a sustainable champion because the MLB playoffs are so randomizing and hard to get through, even for the best teams, as we know. But to give themselves a real roll of the dice every October for the foreseeable future. And if you look at the way this team is constructed, uh, they're going to Oh, have it's those. scary, yeah. So, Ben, yeah. It, it feels like baseball kind of gets it now. And if they didn't, it's been slammed into their face with the last two World Series teams. One of the questions that I have, and I would, I would love to hear someone like you evangelize, is when is football going to get it? When, you know, when, is hockey, when is hockey going to get it? Are they paying any attention to what's happening in baseball? And could they learn from Jeff, Jeff and Sig about the process and do something differently? They certainly can. And obviously the NBA has, has learned these lessons. Right. Uh, NBA is going to get You know, the NFL, I don't know. Is that a lost cause? Like, can you tell the NFL anything? Like, I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't know. We don't have to get into that bash in the NFL. But you look at that league and, and what's happening with it right now, I'm not sure that they're paying attention to anything outside their, you know, own 32 boardrooms or whatever it is. Right, right, right. Well, listen, man, real, Ben Ryder, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thanks, guys. It was really fun. I appreciate you having me. You bet. That was Ben Ryder, senior writer for Sports Illustrated and SI.com. He's been with the magazine since 2004. We are three-quarters of the way through Wharton Moneyball, but we still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.